Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Night Light. Step away from the mainstream and gather around as we enlighten the world and our realities and travel this cosmic journey we call life. Join us as we share with you and provide that beacon that can guide us all to a better way. Explore with us as we examine a metaphysical montage of spiritual insights covering everything from the mundane to the magical, UFOs to unicorns, and everything in between. This is a time of awakening, of sharing and evolving, of spreading our wings and soaring on the cosmic breath of creation. Come and join with other light-minded spirits as we weave our lights together to seek understanding, enlightenment, and with a little luck, some wisdom. This is Nightlight, a reminder that you are never alone. Welcome to Nightlight, everybody. Thanks for joining me. I'm so glad you're here to share this wonderful show with me. Uh, first, I want to thank Ken Quiethawk for his amazing intro. Please seek him out on the Internet. He's a, a Native American storyteller, and he and his wife have preserved a tradition of storytelling that, that presents history and cosmology in a way that it, it cannot be forgotten. So check him out. He's a Native American storyteller, Ken Quiethawk. Uh, amazing material. Uh, if, you, if you listen to the stories, you'll learn a far better way to teach history and, and life uh, than, than in textbooks, which, which are now going into the history books as being antiques. But uh, the Native storytellers have an amazing way of teaching, and I think it's a way that all of us should pay attention to, if for nothing else, a way of, of educating our children as to where we come from and who we are. I have Joshua Green with me today, and he's written a number of books, but one that has been calling to me for years um, is the one we're going to be talking about. It's Swami in the Strange Land, How Krishna Came to the West. And it's a book that uh, helps you to understand, if you're on a spiritual journey, exactly what it, what it takes to be um, a spiritual teacher of high quality. Uh, and, and it's an amazing book. You can't put it down. And, and, and you will flow through it and you will gather information and insights that will probably enhance your own journeys. But I um, highly recommend that you read it. Uh, let me tell you a bit about it. Um, in 1965, a 70-year-old man, soon to be known as Prabhubad, Prabhubad so I'm, I'm stammering under this because um, 
because I'm stammering. Um, he set sail from India to America with a few books in his bag, pennies in his pockets, and a message of love in his heart. He landed in New York at the peak of the revolutionary counterculture movement of the 60s, a, a good time to be in New York, and went on to spark a global spiritual renaissance that led to the creation of the International Society for Krishna Consciousness, which has changed millions of lives. And though this book may not encourage you to to become one with this movement, it will inspire you to become one with your own growth. Uh, through the depiction of, of this gentleman, um, as both an enlightened luminary and a personable, funny, and conscientious individual, the book shows why cultural icons such as George Harrison and Allen Ginsberg incorporated this man's teachings into their lives and why millions more around the globe embarked upon the path of bhakti yoga in his footsteps. Carefully researched, skillfully crafted, and extraordinarily intimate, this narrative follows him as he rises from an anonymous monk to a world-renowned spiritual leader, set in locations as far-ranging as remote Himalayan caves and the gilded corridors of Paris' city hall. It traces the rise of Eastern spirituality in the West, and in particular the rise of yoga culture and vegetarianism and the concepts of karma and reincarnation. It's a remarkable journey into the deepest dimensions of the human experience and shows how one man with a dream can change the world. Joshua is a renowned Holocaust scholar and filmmaker. He's a popular lecturer who has spoken at the Pentagon and before Judge Advocate General's College, and his documentaries on Holocaust history have aired on PBS and Discovery. He's appeared on national media outlets from NPR's Fresh Air to Fox News, CNN, and much, much more. So we are so honored to have him with us. Welcome to the show, Joshua. Thank you, Barb. Pleasure to be here. Oh, it's just, you know, this book, the more that I, the more further I got into it, the more inspirational it became. Not necessarily that I'm going to go around singing Hare Krishna, but, but, it, it's the story of so many people are searching for that master teacher to help them become enlightened, and they don't realize that the true masters are not standing on pedestals with with halos. They're they're very common people who have who who have made a journey that is so profound that their their sheer presence presence radiates the kind of love for the infinite that all of us are searching for. And it was very um, nicely said. It, it's this, this man was ordinary like all of us. And I think that the one thing that, that was really um, most profound for me was that everybody can make a difference. Everybody can, can make a difference in the world if they are genuinely focused on what they're doing and have a sincere love of humanity. It's, it's sort of like a ripple can become a swell, can become a wave, can become a tsunami, if you're genuine in your message. And this man hmm. was genuine in his message. Yes. Um, 
Thank you. I, I think lovely appreciation. What what drove you to do this book and and to I know that for a while you you traveled with him as his interpreter um, for what he was writing, I believe. Yes, that was my great privilege, was back in the 1970s, between 1970 and 1977 when he passed away. Um, I had the opportunity to serve as his translator when he was in French-speaking countries. That was my academic background, was French literature. And so I got to be there when he interacted with dignitaries and scholars and heads of state and uh, people from all walks of life. And it was a privilege to um, see how he conducted himself, how he was able to honor everyone regardless of their station in life. Um, That was a big a moment for me, recognizing that I have prejudices. You know, you, we walk down the street. We have a hard time stopping ourselves from judging people. You know, you're judged by external appearances. Here was someone who saw the soul in their heart and never judged by external appearances. Yeah, he was He was amazing. And he was amazing. I, I, I think that... that you know, when people talk about Jesus and his message and his journey and his story and everything, you know, you always see him with a halo around his head. Here is a man who was the equal. Here is a man who who had a life, and yet he taught about so many different subjects that you would have thought, you know, how many PhDs can he possibly have? But his messages were always so clear, were always so concise. And I don't think that, that he ever, that a word ever came out of his mouth after a certain period of time that was not a teaching of some sort. That's a very good observation. Um, <clears throat> what, what impressed me, I suppose, more than anything else, meeting him when I was still in college, was um, his ability to balance the high tradition. He he came from the highest tradition of the Sanskrit, you know, the Hindu culture, what we call Hindu, um, from a Brahminical uh, background where he represented um, really what's the, the ripened fruit of the tree of spiritual knowledge. You know, an understanding of the self, both in this world and in eternity, how we got here, the ways for freeing ourselves from the encumbrances and the the shackles to matter, Um, and yet also a warm human being who was there for you as a friend. So both to do those two things... uh, Simultaneously, that's quite a that's quite an accomplishment. Well, there was such a a dedication, a commitment um, to this this way of life that he had that that was profound. It it really it took over everything in his life. I think though that you know when when you see you know his his beginnings and how he began to to study and then to learn and to grow. And at one point, um, 
I love this part of it. He, his father said, it's time you got married. And, you know, he said, here's your, you know, this is the woman we want to arrange the marriage with. And he said, well, I'm not attracted to her at all, but there's this other woman I'm really attracted to. And his father, you know, his father was really crafty. Um, you know, his, his father went to visit the, the attractive girl's family to interview her, I guess. And the, the thing that he asked the, the girl's father was, can she dance? And, of course, that was a horrific insult. He was probably ushered right out of the house, and, you know, there was no chance that that marriage was going to happen because apparently asking if she could dance was, in, in you know, kind of inferring that she was a little bit loose. Well, you're really kind of getting right into it. Um, <laughs> let's, <laughs> let's create a little bit of context for your, for your listeners who may not have read Swami in a Strange Land. What we're talking about is someone who was born in 1896, so not even in the Uh 20th century. He was born in the 19th century, grew up in an orthodox, what we would call Hindu family. The technical word is Vaishnava or devotees of Vishnu or Krishna. Um, That is to say personal divinity. And at a time when the country was won by, by the British, he grew up on the British colonial administration and so there was this dichotomy starting even early in life between the haves and the have-nots and uh, when he met his guru this is always of course this is something you talk about frequently I think with your with your guests that there's this journey that's taking place all the time and in the case of Prabhupada um, when he was, let's see, well, we would have been 24 years old, I think. He met his guru. So he reluctantly, a friend said, hey, I understand there's this really wonderful teacher who's here in Calcutta. We should go hear him speak. And uh, my teacher, Prabhupada, at that time, Abai, said, I don't think so. I've, te- I've seen too many cheaters. I've seen too many people pretending to be gurus, pretending to be masters, I don't want to have anything to do with it. And his friend begged him. He said, look, just to keep me company, please come. He agreed. (laughs) And when they went to what was called the Gaudiya Mat, Mat is a Sanskrit word that means like a school. The teacher, Bhakti Siddhanta, was giving a lecture. And Abhai, later Prabhupada, Listen very carefully and said, this man is very knowledgeable. He was very impressed with the teacher and afterwards went up to meet him. And Bhakti Siddhanta must have immediately seen something in young Prabhupada because the first thing he said to him, the very first thing he said to him is, you seem like a very intelligent young man. Why don't you take these teachings of bhakti yoga, the teachings of the Bhagavad Gita, this knowledge of all life as a spark of God, and bring it to the Western world. They're in desperate need of this. <laughs> Western world in those days meant basically America and Europe. And uh, imagine meeting someone for the first time, and what he says is, drop everything you're doing and becoming, become a global missionary for God. That's basically what he was saying to do. 
Sure. And, you know, I mean, you were right. Prabhupada's father wanted to train him to be a, a man of God, a missionary, which is why he interceded in the choice of a, of a partner, choice of a wife. You know, he, he didn't want his son becoming so enmeshed in, you know, the trivia of a material life that when the time came, he wouldn't be able to fulfill that mission of going out into the world. Now, I, I want to qualify something. I feel compelled to say this. What he did, what my teacher Prabhupada did, was not meant to be followed by everybody. He had a particular mission. You know, you have to bring this ancient teaching of the Bhagavad Gita, which is thousands of years old, and the message of the, the soul's journey back to God. Bring, you have to bring that to the heart of the beast. America in the early 1900s, my gosh, can you imagine entering uh, (laughs) with that vision? Like, what what am I getting myself into here? You know, the the Time magazines that were published in India showed pictures of skyscrapers under construction, you know, and, 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 and cars zooming here and there, and the diametric opposite of this holy life in the pilgrimage sites of India where, where you would never see a car. You know, it's just like you and the birds. Mm-hmm. So, and now here's this mission to go to the West. It was so daunting, Barb, that it took him till he was 69 years old. It took him 65 years. Is that right? 60, no, 45 years. 45 years to finally get on a cargo steamer and leave India all by himself. He had no money. You weren't allowed to take money out of India. He had 200 rupees, which basically there was no conversion of the rupees into dollars. He had zero money. He had a bag of uh, cereal because he was vegetarian and he didn't know what he would find to eat when he got to America. (laughs) And he had a box of scriptures that he had translated and with very careful savings managed to get printed in English. He arrives in New York, 1965. Oh, but wait, but wait, wait, wait. But, but there's one little thing that you that you missed. He had two heart attacks on the way over. Well, you are right. You are right. And and if you're familiar with the the Joseph Campbell monomyth model, the hero journey. There's very often this having to confront tragedies and challenges on, on the road of trials and the road of adventure. To, to fulfill the life mission, there are, you're going to be hitting a wall. You're going to be confronting some really difficult conditions. You know, the, the good things don't come cheap. You know, you, you're, you've dedicated your life, Barb, for how many years now to trying to bring a message of enlightenment to your growing audience. You've got this amazing worldwide audience now. And the message has consistently been the same. I've heard some of your interviews, and I, I know a little bit about what you're doing, and it's fantastic. But it's what people don't like to hear. They don't want to hear that I'm going to have to work hard for my spirituality. They want it easy. And that's understandable. Life is difficult enough, you know. <laughs> why, why should I also have to work for that, you know? 
but that's what happened. He he did have two heart attacks on on the Jaladuta, this cargo steamship from Calcutta to New York. He arrives in New York in August of 1970, no September of 1965, and then he immediately goes into the coldest record in 50 years, the coldest winter, with blizzards and snowstorms, with no money, no clothes. He's wearing flimsy robes and little pointy rubber shoes. He has no idea what he was getting himself into when he came here. <laughs> but he didn't die. I mean, you know, I think one of the one of the most exciting things about um somebody told me a long time ago, um, you know, that I should be in this field full time and I said, Yeah, when I retire and yada yada. And I said, you know, when I when I get to where I think I have something to share, I'll look around. If there's anybody there, I'll talk to them. And, and this person jumped on me and said, no, you don't understand. It's your journey that is the teaching tool. And his journey was an incredible teaching tool because mm-hmm. every time he hit a brick wall, somebody removed a brick so that there was a passage for him. He He struggled and he struggled and he struggled, but – his element of faith, knowing that, that this was his journey, that, that, you know, it was going to happen, that, that uh, the universe would open a door for him, and it always did, and it was, it, it was like magic. It's amazing. I mean, he struggled. I mean, this is not a man that, that you know, that, that had any um, comforts for himself. He, mm-hmm. at, 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 by the time he took on this journey he was basically I, I've forgotten the term for it but the level of, of his um, of his uh, it, it, it was to become kind of like a beggar but a beggar who was was sharing the wisdom of the universe with people you know he had nothing and he right. he knew that he would be taken care of and, and things would, would be opened up for him but there was always a struggle and and he stayed true to it. I mean, I don't think this man ever lost sight of what his mission was, ever. Up to the moment of death, people were holding a microphone into his to his mouth yeah. so he could yeah. so he could teach as he was dying. Yeah, that that uh, that's a breathtaking uh, moment after having spent twelve years here uh, when he was eighty. 81, 81 years old. And he lay dying in Vrindavan, which is the village reputed to be the birthplace of Krishna, the divinity in, in, in human form who came to the world 5,000 years ago and is the object of love in the devotional yoga, bhakti yoga tradition. And uh, he traveled the world, made six trips, I believe, around the world. Uh-huh. And yeah. uh, brought brought that mission, that teaching of Krishna's Bhagavad Gita, to dozens of countries around the world, and um, and then finally, when the time came and he knew he was going to be leaving, he then he went back <laughs> to Vrindavan, you know, to be to be surrounded. That's often um, the 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 pattern is you know the the world teachers. Um, at great risk to themselves. They go out, they bring that message of light into a dark place, 
I mean, uh, the, in the Sanskrit cosmology, we are now in what is called Kali Yuga, which is kind of the rotten apple at the bottom of the barrel. It's the, the worst of the four <laughs> cosmic ages. And this is an age described in the Puranas uh, as an age of quarrel and confusion and the predictions in, in, the, in the Bhagavat Purana about this age are astonishingly accurate about climate change and then the shift in the weather and the, 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 the tsunamis that would take place and the, uh, the, the, the drought that would occur and the lack of food in one place and the uh, undrinkable water in other places and uh, intelligence would diminish and someone would be considered uh, very wise if they make a lot of money. And uh, I mean, it's the worst of times, but also the best of times because there's a special dispensation in this age. Well, doesn't this age then flow into a golden age? So that, you know, this is... Yeah, but you don't want to wait around. I mean, that's another, (laughs) according to the Puranas, it's another 480-some-odd thousand years away. You may not want to stick around. We can reincarnate to come back then too. I mean, that's that's you know that's one of the joys of of um, of having a spirit <laughs> that is eternal. <laughs> all right, only, so the only thing I haven't you, all right. This the is only good. thing I haven't this is very very good. I, the only thing I haven't figured out how to do is to leave my future life stuff from this life. You know, kind of like you know, mm. here's the bank account number. You know, remember this when you reincarnate <laughs> because it should still be there and you can pull on it. That doesn't work. My my grandmother wanted to be buried with her credit cards, and I looked at her and I said, "Are you kidding me?" And she said, "I'm taking them with me." I said, "You do that," and she did. But but well, we do have that tendency, you know, to project from the limited material world that we are familiar with, into what we imagine that transcendent realm to be like, and and very often it's a, a somewhat naive impression that it's the same kind of pleasures and facilities we have here, but in better shape you know, and longer lasting. Um, that's still within the material realm. Those are described as the um, upper planetary regions <laughs> in the Vedic texts, the Sanskrit texts. The well, description I, of... Go ahead. Yeah. Well, there, there's a, another realm described in the Gita, para means superior. There's a superior uh-huh. realm. That's the realm of life. This is, this is the world of matter, where things have a beginning and a middle and an end. The self that does not die, that self can attain back to a realm where the eternity is regained. <laughs> that we once came from. We have, uh-huh. everyone has that impulse. I mean, we remember ourselves in our childhood body and a young person's body. And then as we get older, the body changes. But we remember ourselves in those other bodies because the core consciousness does not change. And death is just one more change of bodies. Uh-huh. So, the, you know, so the teaching that uh, Prabhupada brought to the West was that um, 
there's a simple method for uh, regaining an, an awareness of oneself as that eternal consciousness, and that's through chanting. The method that he uh-huh. propagated was mantra meditation, using sacred sound to stimulate consciousness. And he's pretty successful at it. Well, there is there is that that ability to get into that eternal joy, that love that is part of the infinite, and and certainly the chanting is one way. Um, the dancing, another. Um, I think that that what he demonstrated and what he showed people was that you know while while you may be in in, in dire straits as far as, as, as a lot of physical things that are going on, your spirit can still impact the material world with that joy if you open that portal and allow it to flow through you. Quite right. Quite right. It is possible to do that, to become a vehicle for God in the world. It's uh-huh. not a cheap thing. It's, it's nothing that no. can be done quickly or, or easily. It's a, it's a lifetime of practice and dedication but everyone has that potential i think i wonder i love that you're talking about gurus i think that's that's such a misunderstood topic so often i think people have um some people have a cliched idea of a guru as someone who comes and just basically tells you how to live your life um and that's not where it's at i mean you know a real teacher is someone who encourages you to embrace the challenges of your life with knowledge of yourself as an eternal being so that you're better equipped to address them. Mm-hmm. So it's not a going away think, from things. Now, gurus also give you, give you tools that you can apply to your life, um, whether it's meditation, whether it's mantras, whatever. But, but I think that's where so many people are seeking for a way to... to you know, somebody to tell them how to do something and, and you know, I'll take you by the hand and I'll lead you through this. And that's not, that's not a true, to me, that's not a true guru. It's, it's look at how I am living my life and what I am getting out of it and the joy that I am getting. And mm-hmm. I may not have money, but I have joy. And, you know, it, I think that people need to understand that you can't buy awareness you work for it and you achieve it through what you do within your own life. And, and I, to me, you, you know a true guru, you know a true teacher, you know a true um, master by their actions, not necessarily, their words, of course, you know, are, are wonderful too, but, but how are they living their life? You know, are they driving around in expensive cars and expensive houses, or are they are they giving up all of that in order to get back in touch with the source? And um, I think I love what he did when when he started his temples in in New York and then again in California. He initiated people. He he didn't. It didn't matter if they were Hindu. It didn't matter. You know, they were trying, and he initiated people, and he guided them, and, you know, he was there for them to talk to, but he was always challenging, and that's what I loved about his teaching. You know, it was, it, it was a challenge. It was, you know, 
are you are you doing this you know why are you doing this and and when people did become his um followers devotees and he initiated them i mean there were strict rules it was not an easy journey for them and and you know it certainly those that were able to maintain it um you know the benefits of course were of a cosmic level not necessarily a physical level but but my gosh if your spirit is is that vibrantly alive and active then you you've got everything yeah i i i so appreciate your uh insights into Prabhupada's life and mission uh he wasn't asking for anyone to convert to anything it wasn't uh-uh. a uh, a salvationist agenda that you know, all you practice your meditation you do your journey and uh go back to the eternal realm and let the rest of the world be damned you know he 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 asked of us a very high standard of personal behavior so that we could then go back out into society and affect change there i mean there you're right there were strict rules for initiation anyone can you know chant the mantra in hari krishna but to be allowed access to the deeper mysteries of that requires a reform of character you know i'm often asked to speak in yoga studios and the yoga culture in in america has had a rather rocky road um in large measure i think because so much of it focuses on the physical side uh what's not emphasized enough is the behavioral side of yoga you cannot separate your progress in whether it's a yoga path or a meditative path or other contemplative practice without the reform of character that you referred to a moment ago so anyone who wanted to be his student initiate formally an initiated student had to agree to certain principles they had to agree to a strictly vegetarian diet how can you talk about accessing that love that's deep within your heart if you're also supporting a culture of violence how do you do that so the diet had to be vegetarian preferably vegan but in those days diet vegetarian was sufficient secondly there would be no uh use of drugs no uh nothing to impede perception and the spiritual path is one of sharpening perception deepening perception you can't achieve that if you're also doing uh, cultivating habits that dull perception so that was a prescription the third of the four principles was um to be faithful to one partner in life if you're not one of that handful of rare souls who can take to the renounced path um then find one person to be your partner and be happy with that person and uh, don't uh, don't be wanton in your behavior the fourth principle was one i didn't understand for the longest time it's not to gamble <laughs> i think i i get the vegetarian thing and i get this but how did gambling get in there and after a while i realized that um just being in this world is a gamble um, yes. <laughs> there's no reason to complicate things and and money after all the sanskrit name for money is lakshmi the goddess of fortune you don't abuse lakshmi um, that's also an energy of god and it should be properly 
used and not gambled away. So those are the four principles that had to be agreed upon before Prabhupada would award anyone initiation into Krishna Bhakti, devotional yoga. So you're right. It was, you know, there's a price to pay for those higher realms of consciousness. Absolutely. And, and um, <clears throat> I, I, I loved it at one place. I'm not sure if it was he or his teacher, but they said, well, you know, when, when you have an excess of money, what do you do with it? And I loved his answer. He said, print books. Oh, yes. <laughs> you remember that now. There were, he arrived here in 1965. There was no Internet. There were no yeah. cell phones. You know, there was no personal computers. You know, there's no digital media to speak of. And books really were the means of communicating knowledge and, and wisdom. And he was very determined to see that these books, which had been languishing in India, you know, behind the mysteries of the Sanskrit language, which is a very complicated language, should uh-huh. be translated and, and, and commented and made available to the masses of people. And he encouraged us. I remember I was, I was one of his early disciples. I was initiated in, what was it, December of 1969. <laughs> so I've been around for a few days. And he would always encourage us to, to read the books, to study you know, to really master the philosophy. Don't, he said, if you're going to do this, be serious about it. That's the only thing he asked, is that if you're going to take to this spiritual path, don't, don't make it just a casual hobby. You know, we're talking about regaining our souls. You know, that's, that, that's a sobering prospect. <laughs> so yeah. need some dedication. Well, when he came to this country... Um, I, I'm not sure. I think he had started it. Didn't his 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 teacher give him the charge of translating three books or three um, texts into English? Well, yes. Um, the, the the first book that he that Prabhupada uh, worked on, and he worked on it for many many years, was an English edition of what is called the Srimad Bhagavatam. It's, it is the most prominent of the Puranas or historic texts. The Bhagavatam is really the foundational scripture for bhakti or devotional yoga. There's a more popular book, which is, a, if you, you might say, a summary study of these ancient teachings called Bhagavad Gita, or uh-huh. sometimes affectionately called simply the Gita. The word Gita means uh, a song, um, and the Bhagavad Gita means the song of Bhagavan, Bhagavan or Sri Krishna, the Supreme Being. It was enunciated on a battlefield, actually. It was a discussion, a dialogue that took place on the eve of battle. And uh, a, a warrior, Arjuna, who was Krishna's friend from childhood, they'd known each other, uh, hesitated to enter into battle. He was a soft-hearted soul. Even though he was a military man, he didn't want to hurt anybody unnecessarily. And so he lost his, uh, his mojo. He lost his moxie. And he refused <laughs> to fight. And Krishna said, no, no, you've got the wrong idea here. You want to be a spiritual person by going away from the battlefield. You've got it all wrong. The battlefield is your 
meditation hut. The battlefield is the place where you will discover the inner truth of yourself. Don't run away from that. Don't run away from the very circumstance that's meant to help you progress spiritually. That's often the case, isn't it, Barb? I mean, I know I'm talking to someone who knows what, what this is all about. We look at the world, and sometimes it's so frightening, you just want to go bury your head somewhere. What yeah. the yoga cultures well, teach us is, don't, don't do that. This is your opportunity. This is your battlefield here. Know yourself through the study, through the practice, and then go back in and do the work, do the job, change things. You can change things, but you have to change yourself first. There is a wonderful story about Gandhi. And he was at his compound later in life, and a woman brought her young son to him. They walked miles over dusty dirt roads to get to the compound. They waited quite a while before they could talk to him. And he said, you know, what can I, how can I help you? And she said, tell him not to eat chocolate. It's going to rot his teeth. And Gandhi said to her, come back in a week. And she said, can't you tell him now? And Gandhi said, no, come back in a week. So miles and miles and miles, they went back to their hut. A week later, they did miles and miles and miles. And, and, and we're talking dusty miles and dirt roads and all sorts of primitive things. So they get to the compound. They wait again a long time to, to meet with Gandhi. And he, he, they, they stand before him, and she says, well, and he looks at the boy and says, don't eat chocolate. It will rot your teeth. And she said, you couldn't tell him that last week? And Gandhi said, last week I wasn't eating chocolate. <laughs> oh, there you go. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 you know it, it's you have you can't uh, in my in my in my opinion, a teacher isn't a valuable teacher unless they have learned the lesson they're trying to teach. And, and, you know, it was, it's the same way I, I do believe with uh, Prabhupada. He, he spoke from, from experience and wisdom, and he added his wisdom to an ancient wisdom and provided a way of life for people that is, is if they chose it, it was, it was a way for them to find nirvana within them. And um That's very nice I mean you you look at you look at the faces of people and there's such joy there and everybody says, Oh, they're all high on something. Yeah, they're high <laughs> on wisdom and, and light. Absolutely higher in a kite. Um when I get done with doing these shows, I'm higher than a kite. And not because I've, you know, taken anything or ingested anything. It's it's just you get into this kind of energy and it takes you to a whole other place. You're excited about everything. And, yeah. and you know, it takes a while to kind of come back down to normalis or what, what one would call normalcy. Um, I think that, that one of my favorite, one of the, uh, there were a lot of favorite parts in this book. Clearly I loved it. Um, at some point, I think it was in France, he was talking to or having a dialogue with um, it was either a priest or a minister, I don't know which. And 
he said to they were talking about killing and not killing and 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 Prabhupada said um that kill you know the the minister asked about the vegetarianism and not eating an animal and <clears throat> you know then then he came back with well Jesus said thou shalt not kill it meant animals as well and they went back and forth with this and it was a fascinating dialogue and and uh yeah it, it yeah that was with and, um uh, a gentleman from the french church named cardinal danielou interesting man i was there for that conversation which took place i think in 1973 or possibly 74 uh danielou was had a brother alain danielou who was a very well-known sanskritist one of the first Europeans to be initiated by um, a guru in India and study and teach Vedanta. Amazing family, isn't it? One is a church uh, cardinal and the other is a a Sanskrit Vedantic practitioner. (laughs) And um, Daniela was uh, part of a a very forward-thinking movement that included Hans Kung and some other uh, reformists within the church who were looking to make uh, the Christian religion more relevant in the world. Uh The difficulty that he had in his conversation with Prabhupada, who was was all about that. I mean, his whole mission was about making ancient teachings relevant in the world today. The the friction came in the definition of what is consciousness, what is the self. The... Uh the traditional theology in the, in the Christian church is to say that humans have a soul. All other life forms have something that's not quite as good as the human soul so that there is no sin, there's no uh, reason to uh, refrain from meat-eating, for example, because animals don't have souls the way humans do. Now, Prabhupada came, came from a very different orientation his orientation was well let's first determine what are the what are the symptoms of life and then we can determine whether a soul is present or not and symptoms of life being born growing ingesting food giving off byproducts or children or seeds um, maturing old age and death if those symptoms of life are present in a cow in a goat in in whatever animal even in in a fish then do we not have to at least consider that there is that same spark of consciousness present in that other than human form so that was a bit of a point of contention there and and Danielou who had this very uh, uh, Hollywood sort of French accent uh, is saying I don't understand you Hindus Uh, you you would rather uh, See your children starve than to kill the sacred cow. I don't understand your interest. And Prabhupada was adamant about this, to understand that, no, no, no. Let's first define what is life. What is the soul? One thing I learned as his student, you cannot generalize about spirituality. You have to particularize. You, you cannot make a one-size-fits-all prescription for people's spiritual progress. Everyone's coming from a very, very particular, unique place. And they deserve to be addressed 
where they are, not where they should be when they come up to our standard. And that's the beauty of the great teachers, is that they don't judge anyone. They go down to where they are and they listen. What do you need? How can I be of service to you? And there were times when you know, people didn't want the highest knowledge. They just wanted something else. And Prabhupada tried to accommodate them. Can I, can I offer you one quick story? Sure. He, um, he was visited by some members of a, a church group in, in Paris. I won't mention which one. And they came to him and said, you know, Swami, we are here because we want to know what are the highest secrets that you know from your Krishna tradition? What are the highest secrets? What is the greatest wisdom? And he said, oh, well, I can, I can tell you that. And <laughs> what he did was to tell them the four basic principles, behavioral principles that I just described for you that are required for basic initiation. He said uh, Uh the highest teachings. Okay, so no um, meat eating, uh, no uh, 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 sexual relations outside of your partnership, uh, no gambling and and no drugs. And they said, well, wait a minute, that's external. That's not the highest teaching. That's that's kind of, you know, in the worldly level. We want the higher teaching, the highest teaching. Oh, the highest teachings. Okay, here they are. So no meeting, no <laughs> relations outside of your partnership, no gambling, and no drugs. And they said, oh, well, this doesn't mean anything. This is all on the body level. We, we eat meat. What is, what is, what's the difference? And Prabhupada looked at them. He was quiet for a moment. He said, you, you're Christians, is that correct? They said, yes. He said, do you believe that Christ died for your sins? Yes. Then he slammed his his hand on the table and said, then why do you continue to sin? Why do you kill? And he started to cry, Barb. And I, I'm, I'm looking at this and I'm saying, my God, what's going on here? And it took me a while. I finally realized this was someone who knew what it meant to give your life for God. He knew uh-huh. from his own experience. And here, there were, here were these people taking the injunction to honor all life as a spark of God lightly. You know, the kind of window shopping version of spirituality. Well, I like this, but I don't like that. And Prabhupada's point was, no, you, you, you've got to give yourself an education. What, what do we mean when we talk about God? What do we mean when we talk about the soul? These aren't just some generic hallmark cards cards you know there there's a the description you go into the ancient texts you know the, the the revealed text there's a description of what the the cause of creation is how creation comes into being how a soul and why a soul comes into bodies and goes through the cycle of reincarnation birth after birth how do you exit from that cycle and what is the goal? Where do you go? These are very specific things, that, at least for me. Okay? That's what attracted me to the Bhagavad Gita. And, and I tried to convey that in Swami in a Strange Land, that the teachings are quite specific. Prabhupada was very good about that, about making sure people understood that. Well, I think the other, the other thing that, 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 that you know, I, when I saw it, I thought, yes, I can relate to this was the, the aspect of the spirit, the fact that it is eternal, it is a part of the infinite, 
the source, whatever you want to call it, and that it is in, for me, that it is in every living thing. And, you know, um, I I think what what really brought it all home to me was, was the fact that it isn't just people and animals. It's plants. It's trees. It's anything that has life. It has that cycle. And um, I think uh, I, I, I read a book by um, Jacqueline Lang, I think her, her name, I think she was in either Australia or New Zealand. She wrote a book called Deva. And, you know, when I booked her on the show, I thought, oh, we're going to talk about the little people and stuff like that. And no. <laughs> Once I got into her book, I realized she was talking about the spirits of the trees and the plants and, and life in general. And it was it was just so profound for me that, that you know, the rest of the stuff is cool too. But but the fact that there <laughs> there are davas for you know, each individual tree and then each individual source of tree and then trees in general. And so there is a hierarchy of devas, of, of, of spirit gods, and, and, and it, it makes the life around you so much more vibrantly alive when you realize that, that we, we don't pay attention to the fact that um, mm. there, there, there is all of this life and magic around us and and the the one time when he was walking in a park someplace and he used twigs to brush his teeth with and he asked one of his um one of his uh, people that were with him to to break off a few twigs from um i believe it was, it was a willow tree so he could brush his mm. teeth and and they broke off two and and went for a third and he said no no don't traumatize the tree anymore two is enough and it was like yeah. you know he recognized the spirit that was there and when you look at native americans you know they they way back before we you know you know really destroyed their cultures um they they would thank a, a, an animal for releasing their life so that they could have food and clothing i mean they honored the spirit within the animal and you know, I guess the more primitive you get, the more closer you get to nature and the understanding that there is a spirit everywhere. And it's, uh, it's you're it's, motivating me to to ask whether it would be okay if I read about ten or fifteen lines from Swami in a Strange Land. May I do that? Sure, absolutely. There's a section here that you're 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 inspiring me to to read. Um, it's brief, but I think it gets a point across the point that you're you're pointing to here. He's on a bus. He's just arrived in America in 1965. He's 70 years old, doesn't know where he's going, has no money. He has one address in Pennsylvania, someone who's offered to an Indian family. America's 400-year history revealed itself to him with every passing mile. He's in the Greyhound bus going to Pennsylvania. Pioneers had made their way across the Atlantic seeking religious freedom in a land of their own. They crafted homes of wood cut and carved with their own hands, plowed the earth, offered prayers of thanks, and built a nation like none other in human history. Generations came and went, and their descendants swapped their ancestors' noble purpose for the chance to bore through mountains and urbanize vast tracts of land. They spent fabulous sums constructing coast-to-coast highways, soaring skyscrapers in dense cities, 
that concentrated millions of people into vertical mazes of concrete and glass. Inspired by advancements in technology, they evolved a new ethos. Americans were no longer caretakers of the earth, but its masters competing with one another for profits and goods. They turned their backs on covenants with the natural world, gouged the ground for oil, pillaged forests, built slaughterhouses, churned out weapons, conquered foreign lands, and made of the world one huge market. Money was their god, the same one India now worshipped. The Swami looked out at the vista of this strange land whizzing past his window and knew there would be a reckoning. Once the Americans exhausted their fantasies about finding contentment in material things, they would emerge from their offices and clubs and shopping malls and restaurants and wonder what went wrong. When the veil of illusion fell away, when the reality of old age and disease and the sad brevity of a lifetime at last penetrated, the meagerness of their lives would become clear. And that would be the moment for bhakti, Krishna consciousness, the lifeline that could save them from drowning in an ocean of repeated births and deaths. He had come for this purpose, to make the message available. Wake up, the Vedas declared. Don't remain in darkness. Come up to the light. That's, that's an image that I, that I think about often when he came here. Really, it, the title says it, Swami in a Strange Lamp. He, he didn't know what he was getting himself into. You know, the standards here were so far beneath the Brahminical culture that he had been brought up in. And here he is seeing all of this around him and realizing these people need this. <laughs> they <laughs> need these teachings more than anybody. And he almost died, as you mentioned, you know, two heart attacks on the boat coming over. And yet he stayed. He stayed because other people's well, well-being was his happiness. And he, you know, he got great joy out of teaching too. I think one of the one of the wonderful what makes a good teacher a teacher is that they're constantly learning, and I and I got that feeling from him that he was constantly in in his interpretation and explanation of the of the material he was working with, he was continuing to grow and to expand his wisdom, his knowledge, and his ability to give it to to give or not give but to inspire other people to seek information as well. Yeah. And What a wonderful and I, observation know, that is. Wonderful, wonderful. Boy, I, I admire the way you've read this book. Yeah, I, I think there's, oh, I, um, there's, there's a misimpression sometimes about what a guru is. You know, we, we started to talk about this a moment ago. Um, I, a, a really proficient guru, someone who knows his or her craft, I say his or her because there are also women gurus, um, is someone who knows enough to step back away and allow the student to make the mistakes that are necessary to grow. You know, the mistakes are not our enemies. You know, they're, they're probably the best learning tools we have. Oh, and yeah. sometimes, this is from hard knocks, I can tell you from my own experience, sometimes... <laughs> the best spiritual progress comes disguised as material failure. Mm -hmm. You've tried to do something and it's fallen flat on its face and you think, well, it's all over. Well, no, maybe it's just beginning. (laughs) Maybe, 
that was a message you had to learn before you could make the true progress in the right direction. And the guru yeah, will allow I, you to do yeah. that just gently, gently. I think in in my life I have seen, I, I know there are times when I assume I know exactly what the universe wants me to do and I plow ahead and I know that, that instead of waiting for the flow, I have decided to pig-headedly go ahead before it was time or I was ready or whatever. And, I mean, I know when I hit the brick wall, it's like, oh, damn, I have done it again. And I, I think when you have that awareness, when you understand that, that I was pushing for something I wasn't ready for and it was a matter of a wait, waiting for it to open to me instead of me trying to bang down the door. Um, even though I understand that philosophy, I, I still hit the brick wall. Um, but that's <laughs> sure. part of, uh, you know, it's like, a, oh, damn, it's another one of those two-by-four moments. All right, you know, and then you back up. And I think that instead of getting depressed and upset, I laugh at myself because, you know, all right, so you jumped the gun. Let's just back up and, you know, <laughs> take that's it a good attitude. everything. That's a good attitude. Barb, yeah, was... can we break for a moment? I'd like to get a glass of water, if I may. Absolutely. Go for water, and, you know, when you come back, I'll, I'll, I'll talk because I can talk about this material forever. <laughs> um, yeah. All right. Just let me know I'll when right you're back. back. Okay. You. I think, that, okay, this book was, was such an inspiration for me because not that I'm going to, you know, as I said, start chanting and stuff like that because that's not into in, in my um, in, in my method of, of stuff this this lifetime, but it it opened me up to remembering a lot of the inspirational things that that over time I have kind of set aside. It, it opened me up to again the fact that we come from a single source and we have within us that spark of of the infinite of spiritual mastery if if there is i don't think there's such a thing as spiritual mastery i'm going to take that back because i think spiritual is something that is constantly growing and that if you reach mastery it means you know everything and we never do so but it 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 sent me more into a searching for gosh the meaning of life and the understanding of the beauty that we have around us instead of striving for pulling something else into our life instead of striving for something that we want to attain, appreciating where we are and the magic that is around us makes life all the more rich. Um, <clears throat> this, this simple old man came to this country when he was definitely, you know, beyond Social Security, you know, after a while, and yet he constantly was was showing in his actions and in his beliefs. Um, he had a, a magnetism inside of him because of his own belief system, because of the way he lived his life. And so people were attracted to him. And, and what I love about it is the fact that, that he let people come to him. He didn't, he didn't go out and, and, you know, advertise and say, you know, master class in whatever, ascension and, and transmutation <laughs> or anything like that. I mean, there, there were no flyers out there. He allowed people to find him. And, and actually there was one time when, when they, in, in I think it was New York, they literally went out and pulled 
drunks and drug addicts into into their meetings and and there was magic that happened within those people it changed their lives just his presence changed people's lives and i think that is just such an exciting thing to have been a part of it must have been almost a a a heady experience like being on drugs (laughs) it was a magical time that's for certain anyone who's old enough to Remember the 60s. Uh, we'll remember a time when, you know, um, wearing outrageous clothes and uh, doing strange things with your hair and wearing beads and, and, and chanting and dancing really wasn't that far off from moving into a temple. <laughs> so the transition yeah. was a little bit easier back then. But in the intervening years, it bears mentioning, there's been a maturing of the community just as the yoga community has generally uh, also matured. So the practitioners of devotional yoga, you know, they're, I mean, they're my age, the first generation, I'm in my 70s, you know. We were young things when we first started chanting. And, uh, you know, my my background, I'm a professor of Holocaust studies. You know, some of my colleagues who are also meditators in, in the Krishna tradition are, um, scientists and um, others have tech companies or they're artists and um, you know it's a it's a different world today it's a half century later and you know the uh, social conditions have uh, evolved the teachings uh-huh. remain the same the teachings are eternal uh, their application is what has evolved climate change wasn't an issue 50 years ago um, the, the global conflicts that we're seeing. Uh, there was no pandemic 50 years ago. There were, the things that challenge us today, materially the circumstances are different. The application of the eternal teachings, if you will, e- eternal solutions to provisional problems, that's the work of the journey here today. That's the spiritual mm-hmm. journey today is to get involved in the world around you, equipped with knowledge for getting at long-lasting solutions, not just patchwork solutions. I'll give you a very practical example. There was a man who came to see Prabhupada in Europe who was from the World Labor Organization. Geneva, this was in Geneva, which is UN headquarters. And... um, Prabhupada asked about his next guest, so I was describing for him. Well, this is a man who comes from an organization that was founded after World War II, and its purpose is to establish fair working conditions in the workplace and to establish trade um, agreements uh, internationally. Prabhupada nodded. So the man walked in. He sat down. The first thing that Prabhupada said to him was, People want the best goods at the best prices, so why shouldn't we have free trade? <laughs> Barb, I'm sitting there slapping my head saying, what is going on here? You know, here is this grand master teacher of the Bhagavad Gita, you know, the deep secrets of the soul and the soul's union with God <laughs> and love and devotion. And he's talking shop with this guy from the labor organization about trade agreements. And afterwards, I had a chance to talk with Prabhupada. His point was, well, 
you know, if you look at it superficially, it seems like a material thing. But go deeper. We're all children of God. We all share God's property equally. There should be some respect for that. There should be some acknowledgement of the fact that we're not meant to compete for food. We're not meant to compete for life's bare necessities. If we're a family, why do I love you? Not because it's a good idea, but because we're a spiritual family. Uh (laughs) We should be looking out for each other. That, you know, moments like that with Prabhupada marked me for life. And I tried to put as many into the writing of Swami in a Strange Land as I could. Well, I I would say that that in your book you make him so real that that it's easy to relate to him as a human being and as a teacher. And, you know, um, he he comes alive in your book, I guess is the best way to put it. Hmm. Well, thank you. That's that's come from you. That's a high compliment. I I thank you. (laughs) No, he, he, um, and he had his own personal life. He had... Um, he was married. He had a number of children, and and um, j- just one of them seemed to um, be be close to his father, understand his father. The others didn't understand his 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 message or his teachings. And you know, it's hard when when you are in a position that he's in when there is a a mission that you have been given that you have dedicated your life to that there are places in your life where you don't have a normal life but you have the <laughs> life that you were meant to have <laughs> that's the side of uh great gurus that doesn't usually get discussed how so many of them were married and had families and, you know, their kids to talk to them like it. Kids talk to their dad, get out of the way. I'm watching television. <laughs> You're standing in the way. Yeah. Uh, you know, he had a life and not all children, not all offspring of spiritually advanced people uh, follow in their parents' footsteps. You know, each of us is on our own particular journey. And even if you're the child of greatness, it doesn't guarantee your greatness. No, and if I, if I think I'm the too, son of a dentist, doesn't mean I know how to fill your cavities. No, <laughs> but his his <laughs> wife also didn't didn't sign on for being the wife of uh, you know uh, yeah. the person that he became. I yeah. mean, yeah. I feel sorry for her. I really do. I mean, she. I'm sure she yeah. was a good and, wife. You know, when when the, when this book was being. The, among the editors at uh, Simon and Schuster, it it was the one point that was brought out most often. How could he do that? How could he leave his family? And it's an important point to understand that that's he wasn't trying to set an example that oh, if you want to be spiritual, you should give up you know your responsibilities, turn your back on the people who love you. That's not spiritual. That's stupid. That's insensitive. He had a choice to make. He was getting on in years, and his teacher had given him this mission. And the more Kali Yuga, the more the dark age progressed around him, the more he realized this message is more and more essential. It has to be told. Someone's got to do this. 
And it wasn't easy for him to do it. He, he, he wasn't an insensitive person, you know, just leaving his family behind to go on a world mission. It was painful. It was a painful thing for well, him. He, he, he not only left his family behind, but I think even more importantly, he, he left his, his um, those, those that he, he had studied with and those that were, you know, in the same type of a, of a, of a mission that he was in, you know, yeah. there, was, there was emotional support from, from those other God brothers, did he call them? Yes, that's correct. Uh, they uh, that, they were sincere people too, but they didn't uh-huh. have the um, the stamina, Commission. I guess we might say. Yeah, to well, you know, to go abroad the way he did. He asked them to come with him many times. Uh-huh. He asked his spiritual family, other students of Bhakti Siddhanta, please come with me, come, join me here in New York. Let's do this together. So he was willing to to share the responsibility and the position of being the teacher they didn't they didn't care to do that they stayed in india and it's not to put them down it's not to say that he was good and they were bad or anything like that they had temples to manage they had students of their own in india um it doesn't mean that uh, you know that somehow they're inferior each of us you know let me tell you a quick story i i had the pleasure of working with the un on a world summit of religious and spiritual leaders back in 2000. And I had the great honor of interviewing any of the preeminent delegates to this event that I wanted to. And there were 1,500 religious and spiritual leaders from all over the world. One of the most interesting people I interviewed was not a religious leader, but a very, very intelligent man named Stuart Rockefeller, um, uh, Stephen Rockefeller from the Rockefeller family who at one uh-huh. time in his life was going to be a priest. And then he discovered Buddhism. And when I spoke with him, he was a practicing Buddhist. And I can be a little, you know, uh, brazen in my questions in interview environments. So I said, hey, Stephen, what's it like being a Rockefeller? And the cameras are rolling, <laughs> you know. And he took it seriously. He said, well, you know, some of us are called upon to play out our parts on a grand stage, on a, on a world stage. Others among us on a more modest stage. And then he said something I never forgot. He said, who's to say which is more important? Our job is to take advantage of the opportunities that are given to us and to make the most of them. And if you think about that, sure, there are some great names we know, the Prabhupada's and the Gandhi's and the Mother Teresa's and so on. What about the millions of other great souls who have contributed to the forward march of humanity, whose names we'll never know because they operated in obscurity. You know, most teachers well, don't the, achieve world renown. But, but to me, that's where the real masters are, the ones that, that are doing their work so subtly that people don't realize they're being taught. Yeah, very good. And that's what Prabhupada wanted to do, like all real proficient teachers. He wanted to help train uh, a community of the the Sanskrit term is saragrahis, or uh, essence seekers, people who cherish their life as an opportunity to find the essence 
of of creation you know that mm-hmm. that great top of the mountain where we'll know ultimate peace and in the bhakti text that ultimate goal has a name krishna which means it's a sanskrit word that means the all attractive it's not a sectarian term Prabhupada didn't come to make people hindus he wanted people to know that you have a part of you that does not die your body dies you do not die and that part of you has a relationship with the universe and with the source of the universe and through that relationship with every living thing and if you come to know that what a beautiful thing life becomes Absolutely. whatever the external circumstances may be I think I think the thing that, that snagged me, you know, initially was the the because that's my feeling about the human spirit. Uh, it is a part of God, and and you know we all have that part inside of us, and we can express it to the degree that is appropriate for us in this lifetime. But 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 to acknowledge it and acknowledge, acknowledge the connection it has with all of nature and all of mankind. It's 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 a joyful thing, and you do your best to um, you do your best. There's there's a wonderful um, analogy about uh, the barnyard, and at one point the 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 roosters were walking around and they noticed that there was a little chick laying on its back with its feet in the air, and they they looked at it and it said. What do you do? Are you sick? His chick said no. Are you crazy? Chick said no. Um, do you need help? The chick said no. And they said, Why are you laying there on your back with your feet in the air? And the chick said, I've heard it said that the sky is falling. I'm going to catch it. And the rooster said, You're going to catch the whole sky. And the chick said. I'll do what I can. <laughs> that's lovely. And and that's 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 what we all do. We do what we can. It's not you don't have to have a stage. You don't have you don't have to have a radio program. You, you, in order to do your best, you, you do your best with what you've got. Yeah, look, here's the thing. Um, if I may, I'll be a little presumptuous here. I think you and I come at this from a very privileged perspective. We've already reached a point. I suspect your, your listeners, these are the people whom you attract to your program, people who already have some sense of the greater mystery behind things, yeah. more than what our eyes can see, more than what our intellect can grasp. My concern, and I, this, I learned this from my teacher Prabhupada, is for those people who are not already predisposed to that journey. For example, he went out of his way to encourage his um, science disciples. Some of his students were uh, physicists, cosmologists, and so on. He went out of his way to encourage them to demonstrate that the truths of the self, the conscious self, are consonant with the findings of science. And he uh-huh. established an organization called the Bhakti Vedanta Institute for that very purpose. Um, up until maybe only 10 years ago, uh, consciousness studies didn't have any purchase in academia. 
Today, you can get a PhD in consciousness studies. That's a big oh, shift. Wow. That's a very, very big change. I, I have a brother who's a well-known physicist named Brian Green, and uh, he and I have this conversation all the time. Um, we, we love each other dearly. There's absolutely no friction between us, I promise you. <laughs> but Brian is a physicalist scientist, and, and for him there is nothing but matter. And mm-hmm. I think there is a reality there that needs to be recognized, you know, that if you trace things down to their physics foundations, you can find explanations for how everything operates, including life. My particular orientation, which is the bhakti yoga tradition of India, says that life is different, that life is not a byproduct of matter, that consciousness does not come into being at some point of interaction between molecules and physical forces, but it is of a different nature. It is of a transcendent nature, which is why reincarnation can happen. The body dies, but Uh the self does not die. The consciousness does not die. So this is a a long conversation, and we joke about it. We say, hey, you know, Brian, if your way of looking at things is okay, I just got to tell you, it's been grand being your brother. It's been great. It's been a great run. If it turns out that I'm right, and we sustain past death, well, you and I are going to meet up. We're going to sit back with a couple of tall, cold ones and really have a good yuck about this last lifetime. <laughs> and, he, <laughs> and he loves that. But I, so I yeah. think the universe is so dimensional that it can accommodate these many, many different perspectives. That oh, takes absolutely. some maturing. My, my uh, late husband, Patrick Cook, was a biblical theologian. And, you know, if the Bible said it, that was it, period. And we argue, we argue, we didn't argue. We debated a lot about the element of reincarnation. And we got it to the point where I said, look, look, you know, there's not going to be any way either of us can prove um, one way or the other. I said, so, so whoever dies first, come back and tell the other one which way it is. <laughs> and you know, and he agreed. Now, I have I I believed in reincarnation. He did not, and so he's been gone ten years. I assume I'm right because I haven't heard from him because he would never come back and admit he was wrong. <laughs> That's funny. Okay, you get extra points. Good one. <laughs> <laughs> You know, and and if my assumption is wrong, he can come back and tell me. But he hasn't turned up, so I'm pretty sure there is such a thing as reincarnation. But, you remind me that it, story of the two old friends who were talking, and one says to the other, um, "Are you afraid of death?" And the friend says, "Oh, I'm not afraid of death, but I'm very worried about the hereafter." The person <laughs> says, "What are you talking about?" He said, "No, you know what it's like. You get up in the middle of the night and you." stumble down to the kitchen and you look around and you scratch your head and say, what am I here after? (laughs) So, uh, (laughs) you know, uh, so many different impressions about what life will be like after the one we're living now. Um, Yeah. It's exciting. At the end of the day, isn't that what it's really all about is, is to just catch hold of that excitement. That adventure. Oh, yeah. There's a verse in the Bhagavad Gita where Krishna says, I am victory and adventure. What a great way to describe the spiritual journey. 
Absolutely. Well, absolutely. And I, and I also he points he points out also that that um, you know while the Bible is only two thousand years old, the the material that he was using is thousands of years older. The wisdom in it is precious. And and you know some of it is is definitely reflected in the teachings of Jesus, but but I I think people when you talk about reading these these old old texts, um, you know they they think oh my God you know that's that's so ancient that it doesn't apply to today, but it does, and yeah. and you know you've you you have given him a presence in in literature that what I love about it is, you know, your book will be out there forever. You're going to come and go. He went, he came and went, <laughs> but his teachings are yeah. out there, and, and they provide a link to those ancient teachings that he yeah. also did his best to um, translate and publish. Yeah. Wonderful. Uh, oh, my gosh, you, you're, you're so eloquent about this. That's the work of every generation is to find a contemporary language in which to express millennial teachings. And I work with religious spiritual leaders. There isn't one community I can think of that isn't going through this exercise. How do we make ourselves relevant to people outside our own community? What is our contribution to the world today? It's, it, it is the single greatest challenge to anyone who has a non-physicalist <laughs> Worldview, yeah. you might say. Let me give you one well, example. I, I mean, this, he, Prabhupada talked about ahimsa. Now, ahimsa is a term that many people are familiar with, and they would generally translate it as meaning uh, nonviolence, do no harm. Uh-huh. Well, there's a more nuanced contemporary understanding of the concept of ahimsa reflecting the world around us today, which is non-aggressive participation. Just to not do harm is no longer sufficient. You have to be prepared to step in when you see harm being done and contribute to stopping it. Look, my background is Holocaust studies. If you learn anything from the Holocaust period, it's that the people who did nothing, the so-called bystanders, sided with the perpetrators, not the victims. Uh Ahimsa today, 21st century, ahimsa means spiritual social action where you non-aggressively become part of the solution. And so that's a change. That's different. You know, there was a time when to be spiritual, you would go off to the woods. You wouldn't stay in society. You wouldn't get Uh involved. Those days are gone. We're too interconnected now. The world is too much a global village. And what we do here affects life halfway around the globe. So we're compelled. If we really are committed to a spiritual journey, we're compelled to get involved and to help bring that light into the world around us. What, what, a, what a heavy responsibility to have taken these ancient teachings and brought them forward in time appropriately. Yes. Oh. Well said. Well said. That word appropriate is critical. As I don't know about you, but uh, honestly, off the record, just between you and me and your million listeners, 
I'll just, <laughs> I'll go into classes sometimes in yoga studios or wherever. I, Barb, I swear I don't know what they're talking about. They bandy oh, people wow. bandy about these Sanskrit terms as as if they you know lose your kleshas and grab a hold of your karmas and I don't know what they're talking about. And these are very profound yeah. ideas, very profound ideas, and they require some study and discussion. So those listeners to this show, if you really want to get serious about making some spiritual progress, find a sangha. Find a, a spiritual group that you can be a part of where these things can be discussed. Not, not easy trying to do this on your own. Just reading Bhagavad Gita on your own, tough stuff. Mm. You find yeah. a circle of, of friends. You know. Well, it, it's, it's very similar to even people who are doing Bible studies. You know, they not, I, I know there are tons of Bible study classes all around, but I have not found one that has a strong concordance in it that will tell you what the word meant 2,000 years ago. Mm. Hmm. Interesting observation. Yeah, well, the meaning of so, words changes over time. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, not only the words and the meanings of them, but the situations wherein they are uttered change. So, yeah. you know, it, 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 there is a lot of um, fluidity to this. And and I think his his interpretations of these ancient texts. Um, I mean, how many volumes? I mean, he wrote a gazillion books. It feels like um, more than I mean, 60, he, he, more than sixty volumes yeah. of Sanskrit texts and translations. Yeah. There was there that's, was an interesting um, comment that he, that he made in in uh, in one of I'm trying to remember which book it was, where he described that it is the work of every generation of teachers to find a way to contemporize the teachings. And that is what a guru does. A guru is not uh-huh. just a bookkeeper, you know, a librarian who takes ancient texts and passes them down from one person to another. A guru is someone who knows how to apply those teachings in a contemporary language with with sensitivity to the issues and themes and challenges of the world around us. Otherwise, it's just an exercise in, in some ancient practice with no particular relevance. Now, this, I sometimes, th- this yeah, stuff is I, real. I, I sometimes, you know, there are people out there who call themselves gurus, teachers. But to me, a true guru is a student who shares their learning. Hmm, nicely said. There are many kinds of gurus also. I mean, you've got cooking gurus and martial arts gurus and, you know, feng shui gurus and, uh, you know, fashion gurus. <laughs> There's all kinds of gurus out there. Well, the kind so, of guru so that you and I are talking about is the, is the classic sense of one who is, the, the Sanskrit terms are shrotriyam brahmanishtam. Shrotriyam meaning sruti or the revealed text. Someone who's learned, they understand uh-huh. spiritual knowledge not because they've invented something, but because they've mastered the, the traditional text. And brahmanishtam means they're, they're an embodiment of those teachings. They, they, they yeah. are walking places of pilgrimage. Those are rare souls. They are, and if if one was looking for one, see, I think you find them when you're ready to embrace 
their energetic field. Hmm. I don't think they're they're not in the telephone book and they're not in in you know uh, they're not online, but I I do believe that that you you are drawn energetically to someone who is willing to share that energy um, almost magnetically. You know, it's it's like you know yeah I can relate to this and and yeah let's dig into this just a little bit more and what do you mean and how does that affect life and and how do I live that concept as opposed to um, you know, just being able to recite something. Um, the chapter hmm. and verse people drive me crazy. I just, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you, know, you, know, you know, quote a chapter and verse to me, that's great. You've got a great memory. What does it mean? Yeah. What, you know, how does that affect me? You know, what, how is my life different as a result of that? One of Prabhupada's yeah. uh, students formed a college at Oxford University in England called the Oxford Center for Hindu Studies. And there's some extraordinarily um, brilliant, I'll use that word, brilliant scholars who have come out of this um, Oxford uh, College. And uh, in recent discussions, some of these people are my friends or colleagues, and in a recent discussion we were talking about gurus, and uh, how the notion of guru is evolving even as we speak you know it's there was the high tradition of you know the guru who sat on a throne and the acolytes you know prostrated themselves before the guru and that's still there in many circles there's another ethos that's emerged recently i think as a result of things that are happening in the world even within the past two or three decades where the guru is more like a, um, a a team leader, and the 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 interaction among students and teacher is a more fluid affair. Uh, it's more about cooperating together as a team, and where the guru guides things, but is part of a dialogue. That's that's relatively new. That that uh, evolution in the role of guru and uh, the guru-disciple relationship has come about because of pressures that are compelling us to reach a different kind of um, organization in spiritual matters. Uh, I find it very exciting because it means that the door is open to, you know, people other than, you know, old white guys with long beards. (laughs) Anyone can come in and be part of that conversation now. And the more, the merrier. Uh, you know, diversity is as valuable a resource in, on a spiritual journey as it is in a corporation. That's new. And uh, it's wonderful to see it happen. I think you can, you can also tell where, where people are by how they ask their questions. And, mm-hmm. you know, there are some teachers that... that won't won't give you the information until you know how to ask the question appropriately, which is really cool. Yeah, asking a question a, a good question that, that's an art. <laughs> oh, that's a real. Like, this is embarrassing, you know, when I'm teaching at a university and the hand goes up, you know, and I think I'm being so eloquent about, you know. You know, giving the grand teachings of the Gita and the hand goes up and the young man in the back says, 
Professor Green, is this going to be on the final? <laughs> you want to go, really? <laughs> I feel like I'm here such I a was, failure. Here right? I was waxing poetic, and you want to know about a test? <laughs> I mean, we are talking isn't about life... the mysteries of the universe. <laughs> isn't isn't life the test though? I mean, you know, is it, it, I mean, to me, education in schools just doesn't work anymore. Um, yeah, and it, what it it's used to be. Similar. No, it isn't. <laughs> um, and 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 you know, I I can remember taking classes where we were, you know, we 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 got into a van and we drove along the highway and then. The, the the van stopped and we got out and the teacher would ask a question and we'd have to brainstorm it and then we'd get back in and we'd row. I mean, school is just not school anymore. <laughs> no, but, no, the budgets aren't but, there for the kind of field trips you're describing. And there's a long list of to-dos that teachers but, have to get through in a semester. It's kind of sad. But what do what do colleges really teach people any anyhow? I mean. When you when you look at at even high school and 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 you know all right colleges the first two years of colleges are usually teaching you what you didn't learn in high school so what do the last two years in college give you do what do they give they give you uh, materialistic techniques to survive and earn a living but but what do they do for your spirit? Um, that's a problem because there's this church state divide that those of us who are in a teaching position are expected to not cross. Uh, there's been a tradition of suspicion about scholar practitioners, you know, people like me who uh, practice a particular uh, yoga uh, and who also teach it. The thinking being, how can this person, it, originally it was because of Christians, Christian missionaries in, in colleges uh-huh. and so on, how can they avoid the temptation of trying to convert their students to their form of belief? Well, that, that's, that's attenuated now. That's calmed down. And the contribution of a scholar practitioner is in greater esteem these days because it's seen that someone who has an experiential understanding of a tradition has something more to bring to the discussion than someone who's merely studied it from an academic or outside perspective. So there's a greater willingness to allow that practical dimension into the classroom, but you still got to kind of watch your P's and Q's. (laughs) I taught special (laughs) ed for 25 years and, um, The, the the this phrase meditation came up at one point, and the kids, I, I, you know, I was in a secondary school, so they were older, and it was like, what is meditation? And and it was it was sort of like, it's a way of calming yourself to listen to the secret whispers of your spirit to your soul, and to you, and and it, it got to the point where I I literally I finally turned the lights off. I said, okay. Because they couldn't get it. I said, I'm going to meditate with you. I'm going to lead you through a meditation so you can feel what it is. And and, and 20 minutes later, you know, lights went back on, and I said, okay, do you understand? And there was dead silence. And one of the kids said, 
I think I talked to God. And I said, hmm. probably. And, and you know, it, they were all more peaceful. It was really, it was amazing how, you know, I didn't do it every day because I would have gotten in deep trouble. But, but you know, just just demonstrating to them what it felt like to be, because a group meditation that's being led, you're, you're pulling everybody's energy together and so that there is a greater uh, synchronicity of energetics and there's a more powerful energetic so that so that really everybody got taken to the same place and it was it was magical i wish they would have let me do it on a regular basis but they wouldn't have but but i think that the teaching is more experiential than it is you know the 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 you know read this chapter and that's what i'm going to test you on and that mm-hmm. and, and you're going to forget it right away anyhow but you know it doesn't make sense to me if you're going to take people well, Bob, into you're higher education you're pointing to another very exciting development in, 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 in education, particularly in business schools, where more and more there are departments of mindfulness in the workplace that have been established. There's a growing awareness that you cannot ask people to come to work, check their souls at the door at 8 a.m., become laborers for 10 hours or whatever, and then go retrieve their souls at the end of the day, you have to speak to the entire person. And so Uh big corporations, fortune companies, have uh, instituted meditation rooms. So they've they've built facilities for um, into contracts that people can have uh, certain days off just to – will do whatever they want to do to take a course of study or to take yoga, whatever they may want to do. It's seen more and more now as important to address the whole person and in schools, the whole student. In other words, don't teach to the exam, which is unfortunately the burden that many teachers have. Uh Teach the student to think critically, as they call it, critical thinking, and in the workplace, diversify experience because very often a solution to a problem comes from a very unexpected place, not from the obvious places. Oh, yeah. So it's, it's, it's coming along. It's coming along. I, 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 I'm familiar with people who teach um, mindfulness in different universities, and it's a very popular course. Um, so it's coming. The, the, this confluence of uh, the the real life challenges of taking care of your family, paying your bills, getting through school, uh, uh, navigating the workplace. There's a confluence of those challenges with the wisdom of the ages, and a way of informing how we live our daily life with the life of the soul. And that's what Prabhupada came to do. He came to teach that. And, you know, the well, lo- I, you we're know, lucky, aren't we, to be in touch with that. Oh, gosh, yeah. And, but, you know, the thing is, I, have, I, I, I got to retire really, really early because I had a car accident. Best thing that ever happened to me in my life. So that I, I in my 40s, I was able to full-time all of this stuff. But, hmm. but 
many people, you know, have, you know, it, it isn't until they get into their 60s that they're able to really finally turn to their spiritual journey and, and you know, but, but then they bring a lifetime experience to it. So in, in many ways it makes a great deal of sense because, you know, you you are able to apply your experiences to the wisdom that you're seeing and you're understanding to a greater degree what went on in your life and how it went on and what your what your um, contribution was is to it all. So you bet. Um, right on. Right on. If 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 someone's in their fifties or sixties, they're arguably entering the potentially most productive time of their life. Because they're not so Absolutely. young anymore as to be stupid. <laughs> They've learned a lot. <laughs> and now if they equip themselves with the tools of what I think you and I would call spiritual discipline, yeah. that wisdom can be conveyed to, a, to the benefit of a, a, large, a larger audience. And that's a real uh-huh. privilege. That's a, that's a real honor to be able to do that. So, no, look, Prabhupada started, he arrived in New York. He was 70 years old, for heaven's sake, buying condos in Boca Raton when they're 70. They're not traveling <laughs> to a foreign country to start a movement. You know? Yeah, I know. This isn't, so life you know, starts this over isn't, after 70, right? I agree. I, agree. <laughs> I think that, that there is a, you know, all right, so I paid my dues and I, you know, contributed to Social Security and all of that crap. But now the meaty part of life starts in. Now the exciting part starts in. And, and you know, you're able to really um, apply everything that you've gathered or not and, and, you know, enrich yourself in many different ways. And so many people just say, okay, I'm going to sit back and watch TV and, eat bonbons by the fire, but, but there are those others that, that say, oh, this is so cool. Look at all of the, the books I can read. Look at all of the classes I can take on different subjects that, you know, don't apply towards a, a pay increase or something. Look at all the magic you can get involved in the older you get. Hmm. So, you know, yeah. I, I was excited. I was excited at 40. I was more excited at 50, 60, and 70. I can't imagine what, what 80 is going to look like, but I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> now, that's a, that's a definition of optimism right there. <laughs> <laughs> can't wait well, for you 80. Know, when you, wow. <laughs> well, no. But, but look, at, look, at all, well, look at all you've achieved in your 70s. Can you imagine what you can do with another 10 years? Listen, can I come back and have another session with you next week? This is really helpful. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, after we're off, I I do want to book you two more times. I want to to get the Harrison (laughs) book on, and I want to get the the book on the the child that was um, was Schindler helped. Oh, yes, yes. Well, that, that's, that, that's the two hats I wear is the Holocaust studies and, and the bhakti tradition. And um, there's, it's strange. People say, well, how did, you're, such a, you're supposed to be the spiritual guy in your family. How did you ever get involved with the Holocaust? Oh, it's and, fascinating um, stuff. Yeah. Well, I, I tell you, it, you know, for the longest time, I didn't have an answer for that question. They would say, how do you reconcile your vision of the universe as this benign and beneficent place with, you know, a supreme divinity, Krishna at the other end, at the end of the road, with the horrors that took place 
80 years ago in Europe. How do you put those two things together? And uh, I didn't really have a very good answer, so I went deep into the study. And I, short form response now, after having studied this stuff for a while, uh-huh. when we turn away from our true nature, when we turn away from our own souls, when we turn away from the part of us that is that spark of God, we can fall very, 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 very far away. Uh-huh. And when we turn toward that true self, and we can we can soar very high. Well, when you look at, especially the concentration camps, the people in them survive because of spirit, because of God, because of that 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 spark of of the infinite that they carried within those those that survived, and for the most part, have gone on to impress upon humanity um, a greater richness that is profound. I mean, the stories of survival, the stories of joy that they had in those horrible conditions, seeing what they saw and then seeing what they did, those survivors, what they did with their lives is profound. Is You know, I, I appreciate very much the the spirit with which you say that. And I think I understand your your purpose behind saying that. I would, however, offer just a small caution. When when we talk about the Holocaust, uh, re- elevating survival to a level of the human spirit is a little tricky. I remember a group here uh-huh. on Long Island asking me to help them with a film about survivors who had moved to Long Island. And I said, well, show me some of your material. And they had a flyer that said, these people who survived embody the human spirit. They are, for us, examples of heroism and bravery. All right, time out here. The six million who died, they didn't have a human spirit. They didn't have a will to survive. They didn't, you know. So in, in that arena... Uh, I, I think sometimes we impose those kinds of messages of heroism and bravery and the human spirit because looking at the reality is too hard to bear. Survival inside Hitler's camps was a matter of pure chance. If you spoke German or what skills you had or you, whether you turned left or turned right, you never knew. What was the right thing Uh or the wrong thing to do? And survivors themselves never describe themselves in those terms as heroes or exemplars of anything. They talk about the unheroic things they had to do just to stay alive. But I understand the spirit with which you say what you're saying. And that is to be able, how miraculous we humans are that even coming through the darkest of times, we're capable of rebounding. We're capable of, again, seeing the, the privilege of life, the joy of life, the divinity of life. That, yes, that's, that's miraculous. And I'm so grateful you know, to my teacher that he helped me to see that. And this book was a thank you. Swami in a Strange Land is a thank you to my teacher, Prabhupada, for, for what he did well, he, to help my life he, and others. 
he was he was amazing and and you know he kept talking about starting temples in different places and and people went out and did them and i think one of the things i i loved about him at one point was he was worried about those who were starting temples in in california that they 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 might be um they 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 might be sort of swayed in the wrong direction because of the culture that was out there at the time and and it 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 doesn't appear that they were it it's uh it's it's a profound testimony to his teaching and the wisdom that he had to share that that people hung on to that even when they may have been tempted yeah. in other directions <laughs> too this this was the 60s. It was Haight-Ashbury in San Francisco, you know, the height of the drug culture, the, the epicenter of the drug culture. And here were his students following a very, very disciplined, disciplined life and opening their doors to, you know, a lot of kids were going through some bad trips and didn't have food or whatever. Uh-huh. So the temple in those days was a shelter. Um, these days, things are a little different. It's not the hippie era anymore. And no. <laughs> there are more formal courses of study and, and so on and, and uh, community activities and outreach and environmental farms and vegetarian restaurants and all kinds of cool stuff going on. But, yeah, it was if you can fortify yourself with a, a strong spiritual discipline, you can go into extraordinarily challenging conditions and turn that situation around. But don't imitate that. Don't do that prematurely. Mm-hmm. You're going to get into trouble. Well, I think what, what I loved about him was that, that everybody was welcome. It wasn't, you know, uh, and in India there there was a caste system, but not here. And, you know, anybody was welcome and, and provided that they, you know, that they wanted to learn, that they wanted to grow, that there was a spiritual purpose for their being there. They were accepted and, in many cases, initiated. Um, and I know he raised eyebrows when he did that. He did. You're absolutely correct. The the caste Brahmins in India, the orthodoxy that looks at uh, the, the, the system traditionally as something that is male-dominant, that is Brahminical authority, they they had they were outraged that Prabhupada would initiate women and uh, give women roles of authority and uh, took part in uh, and he performed wedding ceremonies when asked and you know really went out of his way to acclimate the millennial teachings to a very fast moving postmodern environment and that was very forward thinking and very brave of him. Yeah, he took a lot of flack for that, but he, he he's proven himself correct. Um, well, I within think the, the Krishna other, culture, women are the, the, other the thing, most important players. For I think one of the things that was was so impressive was that I I don't know who discovered them, but th- there were there were hundreds, if not thousands, of letters that you know people wrote to him and he answered them all as best he could you know he I don't he know when he found, on... found time to eat or sleep he, he was writing meeting with people giving lectures recording devotional songs and music I mean I remember one time he started three o'clock in the morning with his translation work 
This is in Geneva. He, he got up, went on a morning walk, came back. We had scheduled guests for him back-to-back, and he gave a class. It was like 10 o'clock at night, and I looked at him. I said, Prabhupada, you, 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 you've been going for 20 hours straight. <laughs> <laughs> he just chuckled and said, no, Hare Krishna. <laughs> that was his joy. You know, his joy yeah. was being there for others. The oh, and, I, and one, there was other one. There was one other story that I want to get in because it was so, to me, profound. Um, whatever uh, I think this was in India, and and they had found him a place to stay, and apparently somebody had um, gone in and seen that there were cobwebs all over all over the place, and so they went in and they cleaned all the cobwebs. And when he came back in, he saw that the spiders were kind of confused. And he said, why did you take the spider webs down? It was their home. I mean, yes. yeah. how, I mean, that, that, I yeah. kind of went, aw. <laughs> Respect you know, for life in even the smallest of forms, you know, to be able yeah. to, that's spiritual vision. That's spiritual vision, to be able to see. Yeah. The same reality that other people see, but seeing it on a deeper level, you know, that there's something more at work here. That's wonderful. Yeah, that, that to, you know, not to me, I would have cleaned the cobwebs, but obviously I'm not to the right level to appreciate that. But, <laughs> but he did, you know, it was, he, he was sincere about it. And, and to yeah. me, that was, that was so profound, and, and it wasn't fake. You know, there, there are people that will fake something like that, but he was sincere. Um, I, our time is almost up. Is there a website you want to give out so people can find you and find your books and stuff like that? Um, JoshuaMGreen.info. Okay. That'll do it. And your book, your books are all on Amazon and um mm-hmm. Look fascinating, and and we are going to talk about the George Harrison book and the um, <laughs> no, no, those two books got me. It was uh, like, oh gosh, I got to get you back. Well, thank you. You're a wonderful <laughs> interviewer. I'm enjoying my time with you. Ah, uh, well, I I promised you it would go fast, and it has. Um, I it want to thank you has. so much. Yeah, your my your pleasure. book was phenomenal, and and it's worth it's worth. It's worth more than one read through. It really is. It was a fascinating book, and um, I will. I would imagine that every time through it, you'll pick something else up. So thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us and for writing this amazing, amazing book about this phenomenal man. I, I you know, um, it was an education, and I thoroughly loved reading the book. Oh, you're very, you're very kind and generous. Thank you, thank you for inviting oh. me. Thank you, and everybody, thank you so very, very much for joining us today. This will be up on YouTube, and, uh, you know, click on subscribe or follow or whatever is there. That's the only way I know somebody is listening, but um, it has been a pure joy to have uh, this show today and to go into this amazing book with this amazing man about an amazing man. Thanks, everybody. See you and talk to you soon. Stay well.